China has emerged as one of the 21st century's most consequential nations, making it more important than ever to understand how the country is governed. Welcome to Pekingology, the podcast that unpacks China's evolving political system. I'm Jude Blanchett, the Freeman Chair in China Studies at CSIS, and this week I'm joined by Yong Dong, a professor in the Department of Political Science at the U.S. Naval Academy. Today we'll be discussing his book, China's Strategic Opportunity, Change and Revisionism in Chinese Foreign Policy, which was just published by Cambridge University Press. Yong, thanks for joining us. Well, glad to be here, Jude. Before we get into a discussion of the book, I just wanted to ask if you could give listeners just a little bit of personal background. How did you get on the path of studying Chinese foreign policy for a living? Well, I was born in China and went to college when I was 15 years old and <laughs> studied in Beijing, Renmin University of China, and came to the United States, studied under Professor Alan Whiting, University of Arizona and received my PhD in 1995, taught in the Liberal Arts College uh, in Chicago. Came to the Liberal Academy in 1999. As you say, you know, Asia studies, uh, Chinese foreign policy, international relations have been my areas of research and training. I've been teaching here at the Liberal Academy since 1999. I'm just curious for listeners who haven't studied under Alan Whiting, can you tell us a little bit about that experience, I mean, he's such a giant in the field. He must have had a very important impact on you. I'm very proud that I might be the last kind of disciple who studied under him. I learned a lot from Alan Whiting as a model, researcher, and a teacher. He trained generations of you know, China experts, and many of them are now scholars who are making huge impact in the field. You learn a lot from a scholar like that, and um, an important thing I learned is you, know, you really need to take seriously how the other side view and look at, assess their international environment, their own security situation. I also learned the importance of not just power, but also diplomacy, interaction, and mutual uh, interaction for that matter. So today we're going to be discussing this, this really fantastic new book that was just published. You've been thinking about China in the international system for a very long time. And as I was preparing for this, I also had a chance to read one of your previous books, China's Struggle for Status, which came out at a really important time for China. That book came out in 2008, which now feels like a period where China's perception of its role in the world and external perceptions of China were undergoing a pretty important change. This book is organized around this idea of strategic opportunity. I wonder if first you could level set by explaining what is this concept of strategic opportunity? When did it arise? And why do you feel like this was an important concept to use to explain China's view of the international environment? As, as you say, my earlier book was, uh, was published in 2008. It was about right, China's struggle for status. That sort of captured the earlier phase of China's foreign policy Whereas international trajectory was more stable and the international environment was more stable. The reason why I use this, the concept of strategic opportunities is I thought that's appropriate concept to capture the new face of Chinese foreign policy, which is more dynamic, more unsettled, and more certain assertive. It's a new face of Chinese foreign policy. Of course, the concept of uh, I mean, the strategic opportunity was a concept from the official Chinese lexicon. But 
the really the worldview that anchored this concept of strategic opportunity was this uh, Deng Xiaoping's well-known characterization of the world in 1985 when he met with the Japanese business group that the world was defined by two things, that is peace and development, replacing war and revolution. That was, I thought, the, the worldview that anchored the strategic opportunity, that very concept. Of course, when Deng Xiaoping made these remarks about peace and development, he was really referring to, again, lack of major power war between the United States and the Soviet Union in, within geographical coast of China. That was important because it allows him to redirect China's foreign policy towards an integrationist phase and to pursue reform and development. And, but the concept itself, the strategic opportunity, came about under Hu Jintao and, and the Wen Jiabao in 2002. What happened during the entry, from 1985 to 2002? That phase after 85, when China was busy connecting itself to the international tracks, right? it was to try to integrate China into the existing international system. And diplomacy was tasked to serve China's domestic agenda, reform and opening. So it was, in some way, it was a fairly sort of a stable and relatively non-problematic choice. But 2002, after the September 11th terrorist attacks, it threw the world into significant turmoil. And of course, this also came at the eve of the NATO bombing of the Chinese embassy in 19, a few years earlier. And also importantly, this came right after China just joined the WTO in 2001. So I think the leadership has a new sense of urgency. You know, we've got to see this opportunity, the strategic opportunity, to focus on economic agenda, to focus on economic development, to throw internationalization and domestic reform. So that was the early stage, right? That stage, according to who, the strategic opportunity was supposed to last for 20 years. That's 2020. Since started to change when Xi Jinping took over to 2012, he basically heralded a totally different phase of a strategic opportunity. And this time, the emphasis was on China should create this strategic opportunity. He simply cannot take this strategic opportunity for granted. So that's how, without thinking, he rolled out a whole set of initiatives, particularly in the first term of his presidency, a lot of ideas including the Belt and Road Initiative to try to control and shape China's international environment. So that, in some way, marked the beginning of the new, new phase in Chinese foreign policy. I thought this is an appropriate strategic concept, analytic framework to use to analyze, to unpack the new phase of Chinese foreign policy, under, particularly under Xi Jinping, even though some of the right assertive term can be traced back right after the first start of 2004, 2005, under who and when. This really provides a perfect kind of appropriate analytic framework to exact unpack, to analyze what exactly has changed under Xi Jinping. Can you talk a bit about what utility this idea of strategic opportunity has internally within the, the Communist Party? Is this designed as a broad framework to signal official assessment of the external environment of China's priorities what role does a concept like strategic opportunity play internal to the party? 
why do they need to have this concept? Let's imagine Jiang Zemin initially, but let's say Hu Jintao and then Xi Jinping just didn't use the idea of a strategic opportunity. What, what would be different about Chinese foreign policy? Right. As I argue in the book, right, the strategic opportunity really involves three elements, right? One is the, the goal, the ambition of the, the Chinese Communist Party leadership in terms of foreign policy. And second, the awareness of the means and ends the Chinese government and Communist Party tries to match to achieve its, its foreign policy objective, the ambition, right? And the third element has to do with how the government, right, the Chinese government, assess the risks and the new opportunities and risk in its environment. What this under Xi Jinping emphasizes is not simply seizing the strategic opportunity, taking advantage of opportunity. Rather, it's about maintaining and safeguarding and controlling right, the international the strategic opportunity. There is a greater sense of awareness of the risks ahead. And then Xi Jinping, when he first came to power in 2013, he, has, he emphasized this notion of the bottom line thinking, right? right? Essentially means, you know, everybody listen up, right? You got to be aware of the new emerging risks ahead, and a lot of worst case potential scenarios ahead. We need to pay attention. So it, I think it's, it's a way to focus maybe the, the attention of the, of the country, the nation, for him to set forth a new more ambitious stage of China's foreign policy. If I can, just for listeners, I want to read one portion of the book, which builds on this. This is on page seven. You write that compared with the Huan era, Xi's China is both more anxious and more confident about its strategic opportunity. Chinese foreign policy has shown a market alertness to risks in the international environment and a deliberateness to neutralize them. With a recast strategic opportunity at a time of its close power parity with the United States, the thrust of China's foreign policy has changed. Going back to, we mentioned at the introduction, your book on status came out in 2008. It seems, you know, as you write in this study, there's discussion of Chinese grand strategy, but what you do, which I found really important in this, is you highlight the role of contingency, of Chinese strategy in reaction to a set of events rather than always, you know, playing a long game where they're, you know, planning 5,000 years into the future, that actually you see in reality, Chinese strategy is always adjusting and, and compensating. I wonder if just briefly, when you say that Xi's China is both more anxious and confident, I remember my former boss and, and mentor, Susan Shirk, wrote a book about a fragile superpower, which seemed to likewise capture this idea of China both confident and anxious. And, and her book came out, I think, in 2009. If you think about Xi's China, what do you think are some of the aspects where there is anxiety? And what are some of the aspects you feel like there is confidence from the leadership? What do you think Xi Jinping is anxious about right now? In terms of China's international environment, right? I'm clearly right there. The return of great power competition between the United States and China. We're going to talk about that possibly maybe later. And uh, right, the larger overall kind of disruption, the turmoil in the global order. The Chinese overall strategic opportunity benefits from a more orderly global system. For example, right, 
primary foreign policy tools or platforms that the Belt and Road Initiative really rides on a more stable and more globalized, connected world. So this kind of disruption, right? Either it's the war in Ukraine or the great power competition, economic decoupling, setback to global economic globalization, really don't help them. I certainly aggravates the sense of crisis and creates a lot of turmoil, a lot of uncertainties, anxieties for China. So I would say those are the two, right? U.S. China great power competition and the overall uncertainty and turmoil and uh, the global disruption in the global system will be the the main kind of of course the Taiwan issue right that's that is also tied to U.S. China kind of competition. Another important part of the book is its discussion of status quo versus revisionism, and you write that. Considering the rising power's choice, the dynamic concept allows us to move beyond binary notions of status quo versus revisionist power and gauge the complex change in Chinese foreign policy in the 21st century. Can you unpack that a little bit? First of all, I think it's true, but I'd like you to explain it a bit more about why binary concepts of revisionism versus status quo are not particularly accurate or helpful. And then could you just give us a little bit more on how then if, if a student says to you, you know, Professor Deng, is China a status quo or a revisionist power? What is your answer to that student? Right. So there's a great questions. Right? That goes back to why I sort of you know, decided to write this book, right? I'm sure you know and you agree, right? A lot and so much has been written about China, foreign policy and so on. There's so much at the same time, so much confusion. We still quite don't know what do all these really ultimately add up to. So that's the kind of one of the purpose that motivates right, me to, to write this book. What's the big picture? What does this all add up to, right? In part, it's because of China's foreign policy behavior itself, right? Sometimes you even pursue policy that counterproductive or self-defeating, right, itself. And here in the English, language and literature world, right? There's so much has been written, but but we still don't quite understand, quite know how all this add up to. Remember, um, was it May 1st, 2021 issue of The Economist, right? The cover page was Taiwan, the most dangerous place in the world. It turned out actually Ukraine was turned out to be the most dangerous. Even today, right? Yes, US-China competition has returned. But we still don't have a China grand strategy, right? We're still <laughs> looking for it. And Trump cleared it. Trump's Indo-Pacific strategy clearly wanted to emphasize promise. But Biden's strategy has all these elements of competition, investment, alignment. So it's a lot of confusion. So I thought I, sh- I should use right, this, this notion of revisionism, right? For me, I think it's important to distinguish change and revisionism. And change for me means sort of lateral development, how they want to grow, and also means more regulated, institutionalized change. For example, China's growing status in international monetary fund, UN, right? We sell out of even in, in um, AIB, the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank. In some way, it's expected, right? All great powers want to have more power, more status. So change should be 
natural. What is problematic is revisionism. I'm not necessarily arguing that somehow Chinese revisionism is unique or does not necessarily pose argument. I thought this very concept has to be treated analytically. Oftentimes, it's thrown around as a label, right, which is often attributed, attached to rising powers. You, know, you are not part of the system when the system was created. When you grow, power grow, you clearly you're not satisfied. You want to change. You want to overturn the system to reflect your power, the preference, the values, and so on. That was the kind of, you know, it was the general treatment of the field. But I thought, you look at China, right? Yes, it's rising power. But also it's the largest beneficiary of the system. It's a big stakeholder of the system, right? It also struggles both the global south and the global north in many ways. It's also a big part of the established institutions, the network institutions. And also, you know, even though they're trying to create their brokerage institutions to use, yeah, it's such a central part of the global supply chain, which is the engine of the global economy even today. So that, that is why, even right, because of how China views its strategic opportunity, I sort of thought it's important to unpack that you know, Chinese revisionism. But what I found was with Chinese revisionism is highly conflicted, opportunistic, and also calculated. Let's take a case study of this by looking at the Belt and Road Initiative which was announced in 2013 by Xi Jinping and has, you know, according to Chinese narratives, is about contributing to the status quo, the international order, by, by filling, you know, gaps in, in needed development assistance, infrastructure investment. And of course, China has been working hard to position the branding of the BRI, not as a challenge to, but in support of. Meanwhile, in the United States, you know, the BRI has, especially since 2015, has been held up as a kind of weaponized component of, you know, China utilizing its economic statecraft to challenge, you know, oppose the United States using the the BRI for diplomatic, military, strategic purposes. So, you know, China's saying one thing, the United States and other Western capitals are, are saying the other. How do you view BRI within this framework of strategic opportunity and, and also within this concept of revisionism versus status quo? Can you talk a bit about where the BRI fits into that? I'm glad you single out the BRI as a central component of actually China's strategic opportunity. It embodies China's foreign policy uh, motivated by the strategic opportunity, the Belt and Road Initiative. It serves multiple purposes, right? It's um, domestic and international. As I argue in the book, I think a key um, purpose of this, the Belt and Road Initiative, was really to transform the peripheral regions along Chinese borders. We all know China has um, 14 countries that shares land borders with China and five countries that share maritime borders with China. There's a lot of border issues. And historically, those peripheral areas have been a strategic liability, a source of instability and poverty, and all these problems, even foreign security threat, invasion from this, those areas. I think what the Belt and Road Initiative wanted to do and has done to some extent with mixed uh, success was to turn those peripheral 
the China's complicated uh, situation from a strategic liability into a strategic asset. In our regard, the Belt and Road Initiative has, has done quite a bit. It has not helped secure challenge-centric sort of hierarchy in Asia, as some would argue, like Professor Dave Kang, but has sort of um, established China's centrality in Asia. Remember 2010, Yang Jiezi, right, the prime foreign minister of the East Asian Regional Forum in front of Secretary Clinton, and other ASEAN leaders has to, was wagging his finger, has to remind everybody, right? China is a big country, bigger than other countries, right? Now is this BRI, in part because of BRI, I don't think China needs to, to remind, right? Chinese leaders were different, <laughs> had to remind everybody else that China was a bigger one, was a big country in the region. So it has helped secure China's centrality, if not the hierarchy in the region. Clearly, right, the, the Belt and Road Initiative has, has encountered a lot of problems, as you say, right, the U.S.-China competition and also competition from other countries. And also, right, some of the, the problems, China's economic problems, the debt issues. Certainly, the Belt and Road Initiative's investment has scaled back. Actually, in my book, I, I sort of did document the, the, the two phases of the Belt and Road Initiative. In some way, it was expected, right? Early stage, you want to get this off the ground. And how do you do that? Uh, you sort of basically a mobilizational style, right? Massive investment, flagship project, mega project, an all-in kind of approach. But as time goes on, right? Financially, geostrategically, and economically, now the question is, how do you maintain this, right? How do you make this work in the long run? The Chinese have characterized this Belt and Road Initiative as a century project, right? So you think about it, it's really, there is no time frame, there is no specific budget, there is no specific scope, there is no specific endpoint. So it's essentially a giant promise, it's its idea. So it can be everywhere. But I would not underestimate, right, the impact, the influence of this Belt and Road Initiative even today, we have 140, 50, 45 countries that have signed on. And despite all these problems, how many countries have signed out from that? Lithuania, right? And, and who else? Maybe a couple of other East European countries. So this then is, I fully foresee the Belt and Road to continue and to constantly evolve and adapt because, you know, it can be everything, right? And I, I do believe we will continue to play central role in China's foreign policy. China has recently announced two initiatives, one called the Global Development Initiative and one called the Global Security Initiative. These, of course, have antecedents before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And, and the Global Development Initiative was announced late last year. But Taken together, these feel to some extent like Beijing's attempt to get out in front of shifting conversations about development and security and to be positioning itself as a provider of global public goods. And I also notice they seem to have learned a little bit about branding because instead of giving these very Sinocentric names, 
they chose global development and global security initiative. How do you see these as a part of China's sort of overall uh, grand strategy or foreign policy? Um, do, you, do you see these as sort of responses to great power competition, war in Ukraine, you know, and as China's effort to sort of regain the initiative? Or do you see these as something else? Right. <laughs> Those initiatives are global security initiative and global development were rolled out, basically, um, after my book was completed. But I thought, you know, from my right, strategic opportunity perspective, it, it makes perfect sense. The global security initiative, right? What is the content? What is the detail? There's not a whole lot. It really is, sounds very similar to what China has been arguing, right? It's common security, right? But there is one central uh, concept in that. That is indivisible security, right? And where does that come from? It was actually right. The indivisible security did not was not actually the Chinese invention, right? It came from the Soviet Union and NATO East-West down, right? From Helsinki Final Act, nineteen seventy-four. Chinese borrowed this term indivisible security, right? Somewhere it was very convenient at the right time. It was to again to criticize the NATO expansion behind for them. That was the reason why Russia invaded Ukraine, and also right NATO U.S. kind of security Indo-Pacific strategy, the Quad, the AUKUS, all this seem to be counter to the idea of indivisible security. You're creating block politics. You're balanced against China, right? You're again, you're you're playing divisive security politics. It's a very interesting idea, right? To somewhere to criticize the NATO and, and the West approach to global issues. And particularly, uh, crisis has ravaged, for example, the global uh, system, Ukraine and war, uh, Putin's war in in Ukraine. It's also a way to criticize U.S. Indo-Pacific strategy. Well, the Global Development Initiative, as as you said, is very interesting, right? I don't believe the Chinese, certainly the latest speech given by Wang Yi um, on this Global Development Initiative, he did not make any reference to the Belt and Road Initiative. The Belt and Road Initiative was still China-centric, even though the later frame as a global program. But it was China-centric, right? The Belt and Road has a, has a very strange name, uh, Belt and Road Initiative. It shows right, the Chinese diplomacy constantly evolving, not looking for openings, opportunities to assert their voice, their perspective, their idea in it, into it. Now, should we take seriously those initiatives I think we should, in some way, this reflect the Chinese approach, right? How they shape their strategic opportunity. Professor Evelyn Goh from the National University of Australia has this concept, which it's called multiplier effect. And she developed this to capture the influence, the Chinese influence. What it does is, I think, you know, as China has done in other parts, particularly in Asia, they would identify right, the common development agenda, the agenda that's shared by a lot of countries, particularly the global south of the developing world, certain non-Western world. In this case, right, certainly there's a lot of discontent about the global security situation, global development situation. So there's a lot of desire for economic, for common, for development, common security, right? A different kind of approach to security and development issues. So they would identify this common agenda, common development concerns, and they would mobilize and try to aggregate this common agenda globally and try to mobilize it into global sort of collective action program. You're not going to see immediate you know, result or outcome, but gradually may actually um, 
help starting to serve their agenda in undermining the Western approach to security and development in favor of Chinese kind of more development oriented, more they would see it as more nonviolent approach to security issues. Young, I wanted to close out our conversation by looking into the future a little bit. In our discussion and in the book, you traced out the origins of this strategic opportunity. And for 15 of the last 20 years, China has been operating in a external environment that was not completely benign, but certainly gave China lots of space to operate. And it really wasn't until the end of the Obama administration or and, and into the Trump administration that the U.S. became more openly hostile in framing the relationship as, you know, rivalrous, although officially not rivalrous, it's competition. But nonetheless, I think that's just a veneer. I had been thinking before reading your book and discussing in our discussion today, I had this question on my mind, which is at what point does the leadership in Beijing drop the concept of strategic opportunity? You know, when do they say, look, the external environment is just way too hostile. But now I wonder if maybe that's not the right way to think about it. Because as you say, if underlying this idea is we need to work harder because the threats are more manifest, then they don't need to drop it. It's always something to be pursued. It's just you have to work much harder to combat the threats to that opportunity. Is that the way that you think about it? Or do you think there could become a point where competition or rivalry between the United States becomes so intense that Xi Jinping says, look, this is no, the window has closed on this period of strategic opportunity. We are now in a new phase. How do you think about this? Well, thank you. That's, it's, a, it's a great question, right? Um, first of all, in terms of U.S.-China competition, clearly, right, most of us tend to attribute that to the Trump era 2017-ish, right? The beginning of the great power competition. But the book sort of you know, documented this fact that it predates that under Xi Jinping. His first term from 2012 to 2017, a series of very ambitious ideas, a concept, and it was right on foreign policy that was designed to reshape the regional and the global international environment. And also, right, domestically, he certainly tightened control in terms of military and its private economy and so on. You remember, right, the, the worldview that anchors this strategic opportunity eases Deng Xiaoping's earlier judgment about war and peace, that peace and development, right, were still the thing of, of the world. And he made this remark in 1985, and it was primarily re- referenced in the Soviet Union and United States. But today, right, with the term U.S.-China competition, and China becomes a protagonist, <laughs> it now the possibility of war becomes possible, if not inevitable. So it's a different now, totally different environment, right? As I say, so far, at least the official government view has not abandoned this, right, this notion, the fundamental judgment, the worldview that right, the world is still dominated by development, peace and development. What I'm clearly most worried about, right, is, is, is Taiwan. I did read, you know, and I documented uh, in a book as well, there were individuals within China that were making this argument that if Korea War 
1950-53 that we fought that gave us 40 years of strategic opportunity. Maybe we had to fight the, you know, the war across the street to secure that. But the good news is that it remains kind of individual, isolated view. It have not become, as far as I know, have not become official. There's no officials or official documents, no leaders, high-ranking leaders, officials have made remarks. But clearly, this is a right Taiwan issue has to be, has to be managed carefully. So this is right. This how China frame this peace and development is something we need to to watch for. If the official right, China ceases to believe that kind of fundamental judgment and that the world is still defined by the broad forces driving by the growth of peace and development, then we should be really worried about. We should see a really radical change in terms of Chinese revisionism and broader foreign policy trajectory. Again, Taiwan is a very important part of the peace we need to manage. The other issue, right, based on, again, you know, if you are talking about findings, maybe the takeaways, and China is fundamentally concerned about its own international environment, its region, its border issues secure territorial disputes, its region. I know uh, U.S. Secretary of State and Antony Blinken and others have accused China of holding right, global concerns and climate change uh, hostage to, uh, to U.S.-China uh, relations. In some way, it's hard to, right, given what drives China's foreign policy, it's hard to imagine there being a separate right, U.S.-China relationship from those global issues. What this strategic opportunity uh, concept tells us is that even though they may not have a grand fixed strategy, but there is strategic logic behind it. Ultimately, they want to match the ends and means in the most effective way to achieve what they want, and that is the rise, right? What it means is you're not dealing with Russia, which I would write label as, again, pushing really kind of revisionism, the use of force, and fundamentally radically changing the rule of the game. So you're dealing with China, which will pose a very protracted and complex challenge for the West, for the established power, particularly the United States. So in some way, the book is really an old-fashioned book. If you had to put a label on it, I think the book is probably more uh, belongs to a classic realism kind of type that highlights of beliefs, both power and diplomacy interaction matter in dealing with the next round of great power competition. Well, Young, that is a that's a great place to leave the conversation. You call the book old fashioned. I, I call the book just a really insightful exploration of high level discourse in China about China's role in the world, foreign policy, and its shifting diagnosis of the international environment. And then the book is also just a really in-depth study of BRI as a case study to explore how China operates in the external environment. So I just couldn't recommend this more. And also, again, want to also recommend that readers go out and get China's struggle for status, which if I had done a previous podcast with Pu Xiaoyu, who has also thought a lot about you know, China's quest for status and how it thinks about reputation. So really, really important work as we think about what China is trying to accomplish, 
what China's sensitivities are, what motivates China on issues which we might not fully perceive are deeply important to them. So thank you, Yong, for your work. Thanks for this excellent book. And thank you for coming on the podcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 